Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we're featuring. Coming up. It isn't easy being a philanthropist, muses Marina Hyde. Just ask Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. Former Scissor Sisters frontman Jake Shears reflects on the new wave of queer culture and throwing the ultimate party. And writer Joanna Biggs tries to find meaning in a post-divorce world. Before we begin, just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, giving money away is hard, says TV personality Lauren Sanchez, who is currently touring Europe with fiancé Jeff Bezos on his 417-foot yacht. Can you gift aid lols, wonders Marina Hyde. Read by Serena Mantegi. One click on a fascinator, readers, because there's a mega wedding in the offing. Congratulations to Mr. Jeff Bezos, Amazon cajillionaire, and Ms. Lauren Sanchez, bralette-wearing philanthropist slash immense force of nature. Although news of the couple's engagement seeped out last week, after Lauren was spotted wearing a diamond ring in the south of France, Jeff has yet to release a formal announcement. So let's just draft one for him. Ladies and gents, she said proceed to check out. Now look... You already know Jeff, world's third richest man, went to space, looks like he should be appearing above a daytime TV caption reading, I make £40 a month as a Vin Diesel escort and my fiancé loves it. But are you fully across Lauren? I'll be honest, we haven't met. But from the outside looking in, my nose pressed against the glass of Google Images, I simply cannot get enough of this Nietzschean superwoman the final form of the East German silicon doping programme who has missile-titted her way into my consciousness and now captivates me twice weekly with her insouciance, her outfits and her observations on just how difficult philanthropy is to do. Seriously, no one has ever thought harder about how to help pause. 
while mooching round a Grand Prix enclosure with some kind of you-could-never-access-all-my-areas lanyard dangling from her belt loop. In some ways, I don't think I felt this amused by a picaresque heroine since I saw a photo of Jennifer R. Curie biting the head off a fondant icing Boris Johnson figurine from a Boris Johnson cake she had made. Yes, customers who liked Jennifer also liked Lauren. Not so much a gal about town as a gal about planet. Anyway, the now affianced Bezos and Sanchez are currently touring Europe on Jeff's new yacht, Koru, a 417-foot three-master slash three-penisser that is the largest such vessel ever built. To put things into perspective, this yacht is so big it has its own yacht, a 246-foot support vessel which lugs around boring little things like the helicopter pad and reportedly some kind of personal submarine. And last week, for the first time, we saw Koru's figurehead. Ships' figureheads have traditionally come in various forms, of course. Mermaids, Neptunes, angels. And now, Fox News anchor in transparent singlet with erect nipples. Suck on it, history. Our century is so the best. The Bezos yacht figurehead is fingering a large pendant necklace and appears to be about to say something. Draw me like one of your French girls? Either way, the vast boat it adorns only recently left the shipyard, hopefully while some urchin child on the dock cackled, Yeah, but you'll never be cool, will you, Bezos? You'll never be cool. But will the Amazon boss ever, really, even be a genuine philanthropist? We do seem to be at the stage of human intellectual decay where anyone who is a multi-billionaire is also automatically described as a philanthropist, when in many cases, misanthropist would be more supported by the evidence. For instance, I'm forever seeing Dubai ruler Sheikh Mohammed described as a philanthropist. Is he the one who has at least two of his children missing slash kidnapped at any given moment? Honestly, so what if he's built a sanitation programme? I should hope so. Back to Lauren, though who last year declared, I'm immersing myself in philanthropy and strategic giving, which sounds a lot more fun than Amazon warehouse workers immersing themselves in strategic peeing in bottles. Yet it turns out this stuff is hard. You want to give money away, claimed Lauren. You want to know that it's helping people and it's going to continue to help people and that it's going to the right places. You could give it not strategically. You can just give it away, but we take it seriously. Mmm, it feels like they thought of everything except Amazon paying tax like normal businesses. The question of quite how much Bezos does truly want to give away is a thorny one. Given, he once said, the only way that I can see to deploy this much financial resource is by converting my Amazon winnings into space travel. Or, as Lauren puts it, Jeff has always told me since I've known him that he's going to give the majority of his money away to philanthropy. I hope you love the phoned-in generality of that to philanthropy. Even so, maybe I'm going to give the majority of my money away to philanthropy is the kind of thing you say to get laid in the early stages of a relationship. I'm suddenly reminded of Anne Hathaway's former boyfriend who told the movie star he was the chief financial officer of the Vatican My boyfriend is incredible. 
and Julie told the world. But when it comes to his charity, one of the most untouted aphrodisiacs in the world is charity work. Seriously, you want a girl to be impressed? Vaccinate some kids, build a house. Anne's boyfriend would go on to serve a four and a half year jail term for fraud, with probably my favourite detail in the FBI files being that he had fake Monsignor robes hanging in his and Anne's wardrobe at their $37,500 a month Trump Tower penthouse. But look, it's all a journey. And we're so, so lucky that Jeff's still in the pretending-to-give-a-toss stage of things with Lauren, taking a very long run-up to a minuscule percentage of strategic giving on his half-a-billion-dollar boat. These philanthropists may not give the world their taxes, but they do at least give us a few laughs, strategically or otherwise. That was... What does Jeff Bezos' new fiancé see in the world's third richest man? Must be his enormous philanthropy. Read by Serena Mantegi. Next, older, wiser and concerned about the fleeting nature of life. Pop trailblazer Jake Shears tells Michael Sigaloff why his new album is his way of making his latest party last forever. Read by Wallace Hammond. It has been six or so weeks since Toby, Jake Shears' beloved 15-and-a-half-year-old border terrier, passed away. It has been a rough time, Shears says, from his new London pad. After prolonged stints in L.A. and New York, home, for the foreseeable, is England. We moved here together, and now there's a big hole in my life. Toby's death made me realize how much of a bomb he was. If I was stressed, sticking my face in his fur always made me feel better. Work has helped this scissor sister turn solo singer through the grief. There is plenty to distract him. His new album, Last Man Dancing, has just been released. There's a new podcast incoming too. Plus, two original musicals at different stages of development, DJ gigs, a weekly radio show, and that book he really keeps meaning to finish writing. All that takes up space, Shears assures me, but I still spend time thinking about Toby. I light a candle for him every night. I sleep with his beer in my bed. I can't believe he's gone, to be honest. That's not to say Shears, dressed in a crisp black graphic t-shirt and with freshly dyed auburn hair, is downbeat or drab. It's just he seems particularly reflective, conscious of circumstances shifting. I'm going to be 45 soon, he says. I used to love to go out and dance at gay parties, but now maybe it's a different thing. I feel older. Aging out of a certain time in my life, going into another phase and thinking about what it means, it's on my mind a lot. For now, he still longs for the feeling only dance floors and parties offer him. A self-defined, die-hard Libra, hosting is a love language. I get it from my mother, he says. Meet her and you unlock me completely. Back when he lived in New York, the parties he threw were legendary. 
police raided his Tribeca home at least once to shut down festivities. Yes, he accepts. Mom and I might have different approaches. During COVID, he missed these parties profoundly. So back in New Orleans, where Shears still has a place, he started to throw open invite celebrations after the lockdowns lifted. Then a move to London presented itself. He wanted to be close to new UK-based management and the Tammy Faye musical he was co-writing with old friend Elton John looked to be taking off years after they started on it. John wrote the music. Shears looked after lyrics. Late last year, it premiered in London to critical raves and two Olivier wins. It's one of the highlights of my life, he proudly says. To have a body of work we've made together, it feels like a gift and one I've taken seriously. The pair go back some way. I've been living on and off in Elton's Holland Park home when I've been in London for 20 years or so, Shears says. There's a little bedroom on the second floor at the front of the house that is always going to feel like home to me. When he arrived in the city this time, it's where he first headed. It's always felt like a comforting and safe cocoon, Shears says. Elton's a father figure to me in many ways. I want him to be proud of me. There are some weeks where we talk every morning. Leaving there was bittersweet. Again, his mind is drawn to endings and transitions. For the most part, the move has made perfect sense. But the capital's gay scene isn't quite how Shears remembers it. So many of the bars are gone, he says. Smaller dance floors have been taken over by straight people or have disappeared. Gay bars feel like gay-themed bars, but I still desire. He drifts off for a moment. I want to be dancing, but bigger parties have taken over. It doesn't satisfy me. An intimacy is missing from nightlife. The only way to replace that is to do it yourself. That's where my head was at with this record. Enter Last Man Dancing an ode to house party hedonism. On first listen, the new record is upbeat, lots of dance floor fillers. There are nods to glam rock, acid house, Italo and pure disco. Features come from the likes of Kylie Minogue, an exuberant New Orleans rapper Big Fridia, alongside an unexpected turn from Jane Fonda. Toward the album's close, it picks up pace. The end was an exercise in trying to make a cinematic, Shears says. Think James Bond meets Batman Forever in a U2 early 90s closing credits crescendo explosion. If I were to DJ for you at 3 a.m., this is exactly what the set would sound like. Having made his name as the Scissor Sisters frontman, this isn't a major departure from well-trodden territory. The five-piece pop rock band was born in New York's queer nightlife scene before finding international acclaim with their 2004 self-titled debut album. In particular, the band found support from British audiences. Scissor Sisters pushed boundaries with their mainstream success. Their music, aesthetic, and dynamic was proudly and explicitly queer. Take Your Mama, for instance, 
a song about a gay man taking his mother out on the nightlife scene. At the time, it was radical. If there was pushback, Shears rarely noticed it. A luxury he's aware today's queer artistic crop aren't afforded. There might have been hate mail for me wearing a shoulderless, backless one-piece on Saturday Night Live, Shears says, but the key there is mail. Maybe email, too. If there was huge backlash to what we were doing, social media didn't show it to us. Today, he reckons, artists like Sam Smith are far more exposed. I'm very thankful to have been able to do what we did then. When I look at so many of these amazing queer stars and what they have to face, it's a lot tougher. Still, when it comes to the industry and the media too, Shears hopes we've taken steps forward. There was a way of speaking about what we were doing that was really demeaning at times, he recalls. There'd be a lot of focus on campness and how apparently effeminate I was. I sat with Gore Vidal once, a month before he died, and he told me camp is just another word used for someone who has no talent. I think there's some truth to that. It would make me prickle. That, he hopes, wouldn't happen now. But even though the world wasn't as progressive 20 years ago, we're now forced to look at and hear from those who've not progressed more than ever. You can hypothesize about what we did, sure. Above all else, Shears says of his band, we threw a good party. It's what I still aspire to. Showing people a great time is what I was put on this earth to do. Not forcing fun, but conjuring it. It's what I continue to aspire to. Later this year, his new podcast, Queer the Music, spotlighting pioneering LGBTQ plus artists should appear. At times like this, when I'm putting out records, he says, and people say I've been a trailblazer, I feel like saying there were plenty of people before me who also did that, plenty who've come after me, too. Through this series, he hopes to explore and document these legacies. It's my history, he adds, the shoulders I stand on, and I don't think all those stories have been properly told. Queer musicians past were less able to freely express themselves, he suggests, or not heard holistically. Again, there's this sense Shears is preoccupied by time's relentlessly fleeting nature. Culture constantly shifts. Shows come and go. Homes, too. All dogs die, eventually. Shears knows better than most how to keep a party going, but... At some point, the night is over. Maybe, I suggest, Last Man Dancing is his way of preserving a Jake Shears party for posterity. The temporary made permanent. He nods in agreement. I wish things didn't feel so transient sometimes, he says. It's why I love making records, having something tangible to show for what I do. Musicals and gigs, they're ephemeral. An album exists for ever. That was Jake Shears on Life After Scissor Sisters. I was put on earth to show people a great time by Michael Sigalov. 
Read by Wallace Hammond. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome back to Weekend. Finally, married at 28, Joanna Biggs had everything she ever wanted. Then, she divorced at 34. After an exciting transition into single life, where, she asks, does she go from here? Read by Serena Mantegi. There are many things I didn't do when I got divorced seven years ago at the age of 34. I didn't set up a divorce registry. I didn't throw my arms out behind me like wings while walking across a car park. I didn't send an announcement that I was consciously uncoupling with a picture of me and my ex sitting on a lawn in happier times. I didn't throw a party. I didn't order a cake iced with boy bye. I didn't erase all traces of my married life, burn love letters or throw my rings into the sea. I don't disapprove of these things. I laughed out loud when I came across the boy buy cake online recently. And if a paparazzo had cared, he could have caught me dancing down the road that first divorcee summer. But what I most remember about that time was a feeling of plotlessness. I had chosen to come off the conventional path. What next? Not this, I kept saying, working my way slowly and haphazardly towards the things that did feel right. One of the first of those things was selling my wedding dress. I had felt beautiful in it, and though I didn't want to wear it again, it wasn't because it felt cursed. I could let it go. I feel happy when I think of someone else unknowingly giving that gown new life. I bought a new dress in silk jersey, covered in poppies, primroses and blue hydrangeas. I made more graceless gestures towards freedom too. I deleted my Facebook profile, I propped up the bar, I dated chaotically, I talked endlessly about myself, I cried when challenged instead of facing things. Much later, I read Annie Erno's The Years and recognised the way I behaved in my post-divorce period with delight tinged with horror. As if the marriage had only been an interlude, she feels she's picked up the thread of her adolescence where she'd left it off. 
returning to the same kind of expectancy, the same breathless way of running to appointments in high heels and sensitivity to love songs. Post-marriage, I was a teenager again. From a distance, I can now see something in the attempts I was making. I was trying to keep a space open. I was trying not to decide quite yet. For so long I had been in the grip of the marriage plot, the from ballroom to altar storyline developed in the 18th and 19th century novels such as Samuel Richardson's Pamela, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, and Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. In literary critical terms, this was simply a revival of medieval romance for the middle classes, gorging on modern print media for the first time. Ennobling love, once reserved for damsels and knights, was now for everyone. Can Romeo and Juliet get their parents to accept their marriage? Would Lizzie take Wickham or Darcy? Will Angel find out that Tess isn't a virgin before their wedding night? Will Anna go back to Karenin? Even novels of adultery were enthralled to marriage. Matrimony was a goal, not a state. For centuries it was what novels, plays and movies hurtled towards. It was an antique way of thinking for a modern woman, admittedly, but it had been in the air I breathed for so long. My marriage could have been anything I wanted it to be, if I'd had the imagination. But imperceptibly it reverted to the mean, and I felt trapped. I had everything I was supposed to want, and yet it didn't feel right. In The End of the Novel of Love, the writer Vivian Gornick groups together Mrs Dalloway by Virginia Woolf, The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton, Daniel Deronda by George Eliot, and Diana of the Crossways by George Meredith, as stories with heroines in whom the need to own her soul is more imperative than the need to love. As the 19th century tipped over into the 20th, they get to the point of marriage but go cold when they discern what's in store. Half the time they marry anyway, but their struggles to get free continue and they discover that love is a supreme test of self-knowledge that they do not always pass. Love, contrary to all sentimental insistence, cannot do the job of climbing out of our shame for us, Gornick writes. For better and for worse, that effort is a solitary one, more akin to the act of making art than of making a family. Is the end of the marriage plot the beginning of a woman's self-knowledge? A trajectory that takes a girl from household to household, from daughter to wife, does not leave much space for working out who you are outside of those structures. I had never lived on my own before I was divorced. I had never holidayed solo. I had barely gone to the movies by myself. I could attempt self-knowledge. Who is the divorcee and what does she want? She was a new figure in the 1920s, when divorce became widely obtainable to women in the UK, and states in the US such as New York and Nevada removed obstacles to splitting up. In Ursula Parrott's 1929 novel Ex-Wife, a seen-it-all divorcee lays out three options for life after divorce in Jazz Age New York. Celibacy in Korea, sleeping around, or finding another husband. Patricia, the eponymous ex-wife, tries all three. The novel was made into a movie, The Divorcee, which won its lead actor Norma Shearer an Academy Award. Like an extended episode of Sex and the City, 
complete with knock-off Vionaire dresses, five Manhattan evenings and misinterpreted phone messages, Parrot's heroine, who is not yet in possession of her decree, cannot imagine life on her own. She is still trying to win her ex back on page 92. If there is self-knowledge gained by the end, it's of a wry sort. It's safer to marry a friend who can provide a secure lifestyle, Patricia wages, than to believe that romantic feelings will carry you over life's inevitable vicissitudes. With the arrival of no-fault divorce in the 1970s, though the concept came into force in England and Wales in 2022, came another wave of movies and books about divorce. Nora Ephron's Heartburn and Kramer vs. Kramer have more to say about the legal wranglings and bad behaviour a soon-to-be-divorced couple can indulge in than what a man or woman can discover about themselves when their marriage is over. It is a relief when the semi-fictional divorces and child custody battles are over. The viewer is left in no doubt that these couples needed to part. I'd had a more 21st-century divorce, No day in court, no offspring to consider, not even a cat. Ingmar Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage is superficially of the same structure. A married couple make a life, betray each other, and divorce over the course of 282 minutes that were shown as a TV series in Sweden in 1973. I watched it over a day with a friend at BFI Southbank, astonished. It was the first time I'd seen something that captured truthfully the deterioration of a relationship over time. The tiny shifts in tone and the grand declarations, the betrayals and the awakenings, the romance and the disappointment. As in Heartburn and Kramer vs. Kramer, blame isn't laid at one character's door, but here, also the love that held the couple together for more than a decade is still present even after both spouses have remarried. Bergman drew on his own four dissolved marriages for the screenplay, as well as that of his parents. Liv Ullman, who plays Marianne, the wife, had been his lover for five years and would continue to collaborate artistically with him. Divorcing, these movies showed, could be as intimate as marrying. When my 14-year relationship ended in London's Central Family Court in 2016, it was one of 106,959 divorces that year in the UK. However intense my divorce felt to me, I was not special. And although in 2016 I hadn't read Ex-Wife or The End of the Novel of Love or Heartburn, and I hadn't seen Kramer vs. Kramer or Scenes from a Marriage, it was comforting to know, statistically, there were lots of other men and women out there in my position. I quickly realised, too, that I had already read books with divorces in them, books that I understood much better now I had experience of a marriage ending. As a younger woman, newly married, I had reviewed Rachel Cusk's memoir Aftermath, pulling apart her metaphors and thinking it was overblown to compare herself to Clytemnestra but now I knew the territory myself and I could see I was wrong about that book. Married people do not want to know about the death of love, but I now appreciated Cusk's honesty about even her craziest thoughts as the marriage was ending. As I read the next three novels Cusk wrote as they appeared, I felt humbled. 
In The Outline Trilogy, she takes her divorced narrator Faye through the world in near silence, observing and demurring and thinking about the behaviour of the people around her. No longer the focus of the story, as a bride is at a wedding, Cusk's divorcee is instead a receptacle for others' stories. Women and men come towards you when you are divorced, especially when they are going through something themselves. You become the keeper of many people's darkest stories. One of the more dignified options after divorce is to stay still, listen, and see what happens. Faye quietly keeps counsel. She has time to write her own story in her own time, in her own way, when she herself chooses. If the divorcee is an artist, then her medium is life. I also went back to Sheila Hetty's novel, How Should a Person Be? Her protagonist, also called Sheila, was divorced too, and an artist, interested in a life of undying fame that I don't have to participate in. Hetty is joking, but it is the sort of joke that helps you see the truth of the proposition. In the novel, Sheila borrows modes de vie from the friends she likes most and tries them on. What if she cut her hair instead of made art? What if she created the ugliest painting she could imagine? What if she slept with this dude for fun? She doesn't have to decide just yet. The future is open. One good thing about being a woman is we haven't too many examples yet of what a genius looks like, Sheila says at one point. And it is as if she's daring herself. It could be me. This is the thrill of the blank page, gessoed canvas or unfilled diary page. It could be anything. The new existence needs new forms. Hetty's novel from life didn't look like anything I'd come across before. Here was a novel willing to be unfinished, to take risks, to shapeshift, to blur fiction with real events, to be okay not knowing what was coming next. Who could revitalise the 18th century machinery of the marriage plot more thoroughly than a divorcee, who'd lived it from start to finish? Midway through Hetty's novel, she includes an interlude for fucking, a funny, frank hymn to the revitalising quality of love after the death of love. I dated, hopefully and despairingly, but it was much more pleasurable to watch Hannah Stern fall back in love with her ex-boyfriend Christy, the one who got away, in Abby Morgan's The Split. Divorcees are sometimes portrayed as jaded, cynical, the ghosts at the marriage breakfast, But who is more romantic, I ask you, than someone who believes so fervently that there is a better love out there, that she lets go of the perfectly adequate one she has? Modern divorcees aren't soiled goods, but people who have loved and learned. Anna Kendrick's character Darby, in Sam Boyd's Love Life, leaves a marriage that perhaps she should never have entered into. But while writing a message in the guest book at her friend's wedding, she meets the man who's right for her. Even in Beyonce's breakup to makeup album Lemonade, you witness the sort of energy that nearly losing love brings to the renewal of vows. In one marriage, there are always several marriages. Could it be that the secret to lasting love was simply not wanting to divorce at the same time? But you can't hurry love and it may not come again for me. 
Would a single life, loved by family and loving them back, turning up for friends in need, be so terrible? One of my favourite works of art about divorce is Mia hansen Louve's movie, Things to Come, starring Isabelle Huppert. She plays Nathalie Chazot, a university lecturer whose husband leaves her for a younger woman. What next? Her handsomest student invites her to stay with his friends in the countryside, but she doesn't sleep with him. The clichés are simply not appealing. But her infant grandchild needs singing to sleep, a soft, warm head nestled between her chin and her shoulder as she hums. It is enough. It is where the film ends. In Deborah Levy's trilogy of memoirs, friends give her a writing shed and make sure no one interrupts her. When a reader asked Levy if leaving an unhappy marriage had worked for her, she answered quite simply, It did work for me. You have to make another sort of life and gather your friends and supporters to your table. From the middle of the other sort of life, I agree. It's pretty nice here. There was a point, maybe two years ago, at which I got tired of reading about divorce. It didn't seem like my defining quality anymore. So much had happened since my decree had been granted in 2016. And then a friend texted me a picture of the dedication page of Tori Peters' novel, Detransition Baby. Two divorced cis women who, like me, had to face starting their life over without either investing in the illusions from the past or growing bitter about the future. That was it. That was the tone I'd been trying to take towards my post-divorce life. It's an homage, Peters told Interview magazine. Divorced cis women are my role models. We're very similar. In my mid-thirties, the excitement of transition is over and that drama has passed. Now I have to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. How do I live? How do I find meaning? How do I figure out how to care about people and not be bitter? Not see myself as a victim? Not go back to some illusory idea of Prince Charming saving me? The people who know how to do that are divorced women. Celibacy and career. Sleep around, marry again. Kill, fuck, marry. No, no, no. Thanks to Cusk, Hetty, Morgan, Boyd, Beyonce, Hanson Louvre, Levy and Peters, I had found new paths and new avenues of meaning. Stillness. Writing. Art. Loving again. Family friendship. What if divorce is the happy ending women have always wanted? That was Post-Marriage I Was a Teenager Again. How I Turned the Page After Getting Divorced in My Thirties by Joanna Biggs. Read by Serena Mantegi. A Life of One's Own, Nine Women Writers Begin Again by Joanna Biggs is out now. If you want to order the book, we'll include a link on the episode page at theguardian.com. This week's articles were read by Serena Mantegi and Wallace Hammond and presented by me, Evelyn Miller. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producers are Danielle Stevens and Christian Bennett. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.